This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It's my great pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker, uh, Jean Loring. She is a uh, professor and also the founding director of the Center for Regenerative Medicine at Scripps Research Institute. And uh, Jean and I actually have been colleagues for perhaps not as long as Mike Hellishman and I, but, um, but close. I think we go back to about 2004. Our sort of collaboration has in some ways reflected what I hope will happen tonight, which is kind of a mixture of science and ethics. Uh, when we started, I was doing the ethics and Jean was doing the science. But as I got more and more involved in stem cell ethics, I decided that I couldn't talk about the ethics without talking about the science. So um, I do some of the um, uh, training now in the in the labs, and actually have a chapter in Jean's stem cell uh, ethics or stem cell uh, manual, her lab manual. And Jean, for her part, uh, she is, as you can tell in the program, on a number of advisory boards, but she is also on something for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation called the Ethics Board. So um, we have a, uh, a good back and forth going, and I hope you will join us uh, in that conversation after her talk. Jean? Thank you. Thank you, Mary. Twelve years. Twelve years, yeah. It's amazing how fast time goes by. Uh, We've taught each other a lot over that time period. Um, So I'm going to talk to you tonight um, about a project that we've been working on for about four years. And um, our idea is to use stem cells to treat Parkinson's disease. The interesting thing from... uh, from, I think, just about any perspective, is the fact that the patients are involved in fundraising for the research, and they're also involved in the research itself, and they visit my lab a lot. It's really transformed the way that we do science. And as far as I know, there has not been any other program like that. So we're trailblazing this new idea of how to fund research, which was referred to in the... um, and the title is crowdsourcing. Um, but I just wanted to show you, this picture is part of the crowd. All the people in this picture have Parkinson's disease. And all the people in this picture are helping to raise funds to treat Parkinson's disease with stem cells. So these are some of the things that I'll be talking about. I just want to highlight them to start with. I'll be talking about a, a kind of stem cell called an induced pluripotent stem cell. Um, I'll talk about very briefly about the causes of, of Parkinson's disease, or at least the result of, of Parkinson's disease. Um, I'll describe briefly our patient-specific cell therapy um, and why we're doing it this way. Um, I'm also going to touch on the challenges for funding, which is what led us to this in the first place, and, um, and finish with um, talking about the foundation that, that um, supports our work which is called Summit for Stem Cell for reasons that should become obvious as I speak. Okay, so I have to do this first. I have to tell you that there are stem cells and there are stem cells. Um, The adult stem cells that you hear so much about, especially from athletes, um, are cells that we have in our bodies. Um, 
And they're found, there are a couple of sources that are fairly easy to get, bone marrow and fat, adipose tissue from your belly fat. The trouble is that they can only make a few things. They, they're, um, they can't make nerve cells, for example. So I represent them by this very simple Swiss Army knife. And as you'll see, pluripotent stem cells are quite different. They're capable of making every single cell type in our body. So if you want to make nerve cells, you don't use cells that are circulating in, in, our, in our bodies, but, but instead use pluripotent stem cells, which turn out to be quite easy to obtain these days. So uh, the first pluripotent stem cells, those are cells that can make every cell type from humans, were made in 1998. And they were derived uh, from embryos that had been discarded after IVF procedures. There's a little area, and we went through all this when we were about five days old. We all had pluripotent stem cells. So the idea was to capture these cells and put them into culture and expand them. So um, that happened in uh, 1998. But then in 2007, everything became much easier and simpler. And that was when Shinya Yamanaka published the method for making, making pluripotent stem cells from ordinary skin cells. And for this, he won the Nobel Prize. So it was quite a, a remarkable discovery. and didn't just affect me. Um, so what you do is you take a skin biopsy from a volunteer, and you grow what are called fibroblasts, which are the skin cells that are resident right under the top layer of your skin. And then doing something that's called reprogramming, it's a molecular biology technique. Um, it's really very well established. You can make what are called induced pluripotent stem cells. And I, I'm not, this point, both arrows point to the same dish for a reason. These cells are, are exactly the same as embryonic stem cells. The only difference is they come from a different person. So anybody in this room could have induced pluripotent stem cells made from their skin, and they would be yours. They would have your, your genome, your DNA in them. So this shows the, um, the reprogramming process in a slightly different way. The fibroblasts are on the top. They're kind of boring. And then when you do reprogramming, you, the cells change their morphology dramatically, and they start getting smaller, and they get packed together. And there's no mistaking when you've reprogrammed cells. It's very easy to tell. Uh, the picture on the right, uh, lower right-hand corner is a, um, what we, it's a fluorescence microscopy picture that shows the staining of, with antibodies that are typical of, of pluripotent stem cells. And I just put it in there because it's pretty. Okay, so we think of, um, of using pluripotent stem cells for cell therapy and sort of like um, think of the cells like in a tree structure. The pluripotent stem cells are at the bottom, and every cell type in the body comes out on the branches in this, in this sort of model. So what I want to point out is that there are a lot of these cell types that are currently being developed for cell therapy, and I mean cell replacement therapy. I mean cells die, and then the idea is to replace those cells with the same cells that um, are healthy. So one of those uh, projects is on macular degeneration. There are a number of labs working on that. Um, diabetes, is there's a local uh, company who's involved in that. Um, heart disease, there are many people doing that, muscular skeletal muscle for muscular dystrophy, liver cells for hepatitis, skin for replacement without rejection, and neural precursors for multiple sclerosis. That's another project in my lab. And then finally, dopamine neurons for Parkinson's disease. And I'll show you why we want to make dopamine neurons. In Parkinson's disease, 
and I think you're all familiar with the symptoms, so you probably know somebody with Parkinson's disease. And it's really all caused by the death of neurons in a very small part of the brain called the substantia nigra. These are dopamine-producing cells. And you can see from this diagram that the cells sort of swoop up and, and start and attach to another part of the brain, which is called the striatum. And that's essentially it. If those cells die, then they, you no longer have dopamine in the striatum, and that leads to these movement disorders. It's one of the simpler situations for a stem cell therapy, which I think will be obvious to you. So this shows the key strategy that we're using. That is to make induced pluripotent cells, uh, stem cells from individual people. We make those into dopamine neurons. And then our goal is to transplant them back into the brains of the Parkinson's patients themselves. So the reason we think this is going to work because there's a, is because there's a history in this area. Um, in the early, uh, late H, uh, 1980s and the early 1990s, there were a large number of studies being done using fetal tissue. Because there were, this is before there were human stem cells. And the idea was to take a little chunk of a uh, six to ten week old fetus, and, and of course that involves abortion, and uh, transplant those cells to the brains of people with Parkinson's disease. And the little chunk are, is the part of the brain that's going to give rise to the substantia nigra. So it's the precursors of the dopamine cells that, we, that are missing in Parkinson's disease. So people actually did this as clinical trials. They were funded by the NIH in the U.S. They were also done in Sweden and a few other countries, some in Mexico. But this particular study was the only one that was a double-blind clinical trial in the sense that you could, um, you could tell whether the treatment had any effect or not. So uh, these two researchers did um, uh, transplantations for 74 Parkinson's disease patients. They used, in general, they used um, three fetuses per each side of the brain. And their outcomes were mixed. And this is the, the reason why um, not, this, isn't, this is not such a popular technique now, among the reasons. So the, uh, one of the outcomes was there was no change. So nobody, they weren't harmed by it, but they weren't helped by it either. Um, another quite dramatic change was a reduction of Parkinson's disease patients. In other words, what really looked like a cure. And people would stop taking their Parkinson's medication, and for the rest of their lives, they'd be free of all the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. The problem was, and the reason why this didn't uh, continue um, and at that point, is because of a, of a side effect called dyskinesia. And dyskinesia is is sort of the opposite of the frozen state that people can be in in Parkinson's disease in which they can't, they can't control the fine movements of their muscles. Dyskinesias are what they sound like. You don't, your, your muscles are, are contracting and you don't really have control over them. So that's a really unpleasant side effect. And it really, because it was in such a large portion of these people, essentially killed this sort of study for the next... Um, I guess probably 10 to 15 years. So what I've illustrated here is the, uh, the fetus, which is extremely much more small than this. It's about, be only about a centimeter or so long. And then the fetal cells, which, uh, which I've illustrated here, which get transplanted to this part, which is the, the um, striatum. So we don't put them back in the substantia nigra and expect them to grow back. 
we put them into the target of the substantia nigra neurons. And that is really a practical issue because, and actually it works, which is nice, um, but um, it's very hard to get nerves, you know, the central nervous system to grow. So we just put them where we want them to be. Right? Um, what I'm illustrating here is that when you use fetal cells, only these little green guys are considered are the dopamine neurons. But there are other cells also, because you're not really, it's not a pure culture, or it's not a pure population of anything. And so the likely cause of the dyskinesias, and there's actually some evidence for this, is that these other cells would also survive, and there were other kinds of neurons which elicited a bad side effect. And you can't get around that, really, with fetal tissue. So as I said, they worked sometimes. They worked quite remarkably sometimes. Uh, this is a report from 2014 that um, uh, the Parkinson's patients that were transplanted in the U.S. and in Sweden, a lot of them agreed uh, that upon their deaths, their brains could be examined. And remarkably, in the people who were helped by the therapy, the cells were still alive after 15 to 20 years. So that means that they were effectively having their cells replaced and that they lasted for the rest of their lives. So um, and this little diagram at the bottom shows just a time course of the um, increase in dopamine over time. So these people continue to get better over a decade, which is also, I think, pretty cool. And their symptoms became less severe over time. Okay, so what did we learn from the fetal cell transplants? Um, well, there, besides the unacceptable side effects, which are illustrated here, that the particular type of neuron that seems to cause the problem is called a serotonergic neuron. It makes a different molecule that's used to communicate with other cells. It's not dopamine. So the main issues are quality control issues, and that is because you have to dissect out a tiny piece of tissue from multiple fetuses, which are not really readily available anyway, especially in the U.S., and the um, tissue has, has variable viability. Some of it is kind of dead and fragmented, and some of it is quite healthy, but it's rare to have healthy cells. And you can't control for the types of brain cells that you're putting in because you're cutting out a piece of tissue that has multiple cell types in it. So um, in the U.S., of course, there are complex legal and ethical issues uh, associated with the use of aborted fetuses, and that has become rather powerful in the last year or so. So it seemed obvious to us that using stem cells instead of fetuses made a lot of sense. So the advantages are essentially our ability to do quality control, which means that we can analyze the neurons and find out what they are before we transplant them into people. We can use the same number every time. This is starting to look like a drug because we can do a dose, a dosage effect. And we're not going to put any of those other neurons in that cause the dyskinesias. So we can avoid the major side effect. There are no ethical issues. And then it's important to note that in our project, we're using cells that match the, the patient. And what that means is that they will not require immunosuppression. And if anybody, anyone here knows someone who's gotten a kidney transplant, you know that they have to go through long-term immunosuppression, which is very hard on people. It's also very expensive. So we don't have to do that at all. 
by using the patient's own cells. So as you see illustrated here, here's a little culture of dopamine neurons. The only cells we put in essentially are dopamine neurons, so we don't have all those issues. So in general, in stem cell therapies, cell replacement therapies, there is a lot going on now, and this has only happened in the last few years. There's a study, there are several studies that are starting in Japan, but the first transplant of cells from iPS cells, that's induced pluripotent stem cells, was done in Japan uh, for macular degeneration, which is a degenerated, an age-related uh, degeneration of the, uh, in the eye. So that's underway in Japan. And then here in uh, San Diego, there's a company called Viasite, who are, who are currently doing a clinical trial using pluripotent stem cell-derived islet cells for diabetes. So essentially what they're doing is creating an artificial pancreas by putting these cells in these little tubes, which they show here, so that they can't get out and also they can't be attacked because diabetes, type 1 diabetes, is an autoimmune disease. So if you just put the cells in, they'll get killed by the immune system. So this is very clever. It's, it's en route, and they're, they're ahead of everybody else. Okay, now I want to bring up the, the issue of science funding because it is constantly changing, and unfortunately it's getting worse. So most of the funding for scientific research and, in fact, those clinical trials I told you about comes from the National Institutes of Health. But the National Institutes of Health is losing purchasing power at an alarming rate. Um, in the last 10 years, 23% of its budget's purchasing power has, has um, disappeared. They're now funding th about a third fewer grants than they used to. And the odds of receiving a grant has fallen by exactly 43%. What I know is that I, if, in order to be pretty sure I'll get a grant, I have to submit 10 grants to the NIH because the funding is 1 in 10. What that means is that a lot of good things don't get funded these days because, in fact, that one grant may not, in fact, be so much better than the, than the second best one, which doesn't get funded. It's very difficult for people who review grants to realize how, how much good science is going unfunded. So also the NIH these days does not normally fund translational clinical projects, not in general. They do fund certain specific projects when they are allowed to by the Congress. Okay, so stepping in to the gap, at least somewhat, is the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine, which I'm sure you all voted for mm -hmm. in 2004. What it did was to give a $3 billion budget uh, for stem cell research to scientists who are in California. It's been very, it's been very useful, and it's made California really the epicenter of stem cell research. However, right now, since they were only supposed to last 10 years, and it's been 12, they only have a quarter of their budget left. And that money is going to projects that are ready or in clinical trials are ready for clinical trials. So they've shifted their focus in order to get a better payoff in their minds. Uh, Viasite, for example, which I mentioned earlier for their diabetes trial, has gotten $55 million from CERM. And it's still not enough, of course, but they've gotten more money than most people. And interestingly, CERM has not funded a grant 
on Parkinson's disease in the last two years. And there are no clinical trials funded by CERM. Okay, so I want to give you an overview of our progress um, over the last four years since we've um, had funding from this foundation. Uh, We've made the induced pluripotent stem cells from 10 patients who were selected because they have characteristics that will make them most likely to benefit from this therapy. In other words, they're not too early stage and not too late stage because we want it to work the first time. And since it's patient-specific, we had to identify those people ahead of time. So the, uh, we have developed the technology to turn iPS cells reliably into dopamine neurons, which is extremely... Um, I have to give credit to Andres Bratlial, who should raise his hand right now. He's the director of this program, and he's the one who's figured out how to reproducibly make the same cell type from different patients every single time. And he also has, I mean, hold your applause. (laughs) He's also shown that when you transplant those dopamine neurons from different patients into a rat that's had induced Parkinson's disease, those rats are cured. So everything is going beautifully, and we had our first meeting with the FDA in February. It's called a pre-pre-IND meeting, and we got advice about what we'll need for a clinical trial, what we need to do. Mostly it's safety studies, and those are take a really long time. We have received two small CIRM grants. They're actually parts of, of bigger projects. One is to develop quality control assays for the for the uh, cells, and the other one is to do um, DNA sequencing on all the patient cells to make sure that we haven't introduced any mutations in them that might cause them to not work well or to cause tumors. However, the main thrust of my presentation is on the people who have made this possible. In the absence of federal funding and in the absence of enough CERM funding, Um, an organization was uh, formed to help us fund the research for these last four years. And the people who are responsible for that, um, we're all in the audience today except for Melissa. Um, Jennifer Robb is the president of the organization. Jennifer, it's right there. You've met uh, Andreas and Sherry Gould, who is somewhere. They're all all sitting together. It's weird. (laughs) Um, Jerry Gould has been the passionate person who has uh, initiated all this. So let me just tell you, um, I'm going to let the patients say, explain this themselves, because I think they're the, the most, they have the most clear idea of what this kind of therapy means for them and why they're involved in raising funding for it. So let me start this movie, and I'll just step back and let them talk. Well, it all started with a little stiffness in my left hand. And they noticed my movement is, was decreasing. Even before the tremor showed up, uh, I was very depressed. In the early... 2000s, I started losing my sense of smell. When I compared symptoms with a friend of mine who has been diagnosed with Parkinson's, I started checking the list and saying, I've got that too and that too. We both cried. Dr. Hauser is the person that told me that definitively 
then I had Parkinson's. Parkinson's disease almost uniformly progresses. What I understand about Parkinson's is there's no cure. The neurons in my brain that produce dopamine are dying off. When your symptoms manifest themselves, as mine did several years ago, 80% uh, of those neurons are gone. I control the symptoms by taking uh, some medication several times a day. I'll need more medication as time goes down the road. When I understood about some of the side effects, I was not very excited about that. The best hope that I've researched and have heard about is the, uh, the pluripotent stem cell procedure. It seems like magic, but it is science. The great thing about pluripotent stem cells is that they can give rise to any cell type in the body. Sherry Gould, my nurse practitioner, called me and said that she had an excellent idea. The upside, the potential side of it is, is phenomenal. It's a different kind of medicine which approaches real healing. So we're at a point now where we need to branch out um, to not just the little grassroots region that we've been able to reach so far, but a national or international level of um, philanthropy. I feel it's really opened up a huge opportunity to find healing. If for no other reason, the possibility that this could be that huge for so many people is, is more than worth opening my wallet. And making an, an investment in a program like this would, would be an opportunity to be on the cutting edge and to really get a foothold in these developing technologies that are ultimately gonna help so many people. I'll stop it there. Um, that's all I have to say. I'll let them say it. Thanks. So I thought I might start by picking up something that actually is in our title and was at the end of Jean's presentation, which is that one of the things that makes this particular research different is the way in which it's being funded. So I thought maybe we would start with perhaps my asking Jean how um, she got involved in, well, on the one hand, Parkinson's, but of course, you know, various researchers follow different kinds of disease courses, but why Parkinson's and how did this crowdsourcing get started? How did the foundation get started? Um, so I actually had a slide on this, which didn't show up. <laughs> um, it was in 2012, and please, Sherry, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, Sherry Gould and Melissa Hauser came to my office, and they asked me if there might be a, um, a way of, of treating people with Parkinson's disease, because Sherry is the head of the Movement Disorders Clinic in, uh, at Scripps Health, which is not related to Scripps Research. Um, and they And we discussed it. She had the patients and I had the stem cell technology and the only thing missing was funding for it. So Sherry stepped up and she raised the first $300,000 by taking a group of 15 people, including Parkinson's disease patients, to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. So now you know the name, why the name is Summit for stem cell. Um, since then, they've climbed um, to the base camp of Mount Everest, and they plan to go to, to take the trek to Machu Picchu this fall. And it's pretty remarkable to see 
Parkinson's patients, which I think we think of as being debilitated, they're not debilitated. These guys are a lot stronger than I am. So we've also had things like other fundraisers. Uh, One interesting characteristic of this particular group is that we're all volunteers, including me. I don't, I don't get paid by, this, by the foundation. The only people who are paid are the ones who are actually on the ground in the lab at the bench. And all the people who are raising money and, and everyone else is unpaid, a volunteer. So remarkably, this has worked really well. They've raised more than $2 million over four years, which has been enough to get us to the stage where we are now, which is the anticipation of clinical trials in the near future. Okay, thank you. Well, one question that occurs to me to follow up is that you presented some of the challenges with getting funding in the usual sort of way. Uh, For those of you who don't work in this field, I mean, to reiterate, a lot of the basic research funding comes from federal agencies like the National Institutes of Health and so on. And there are some private foundations as well, but the funding for the basic research, because it's so highly experimental and so much of it fails, tends to come from those federal agencies because if you go to individual companies and so on, who might, if these things work, stand to make a great deal of profit and would be incentivized to invest, aren't going to take those risks. I think Jean has already talked about that. So my question, uh, Jean, is so why not just adopt this, what we're calling crowdsourcing model, and use this for research funding across the board? What would we gain and what would we lose? Well, I can certainly see what we can gain. I mean, I think, the, in, in my mind, the decision is either we do it or we don't do it. If we don't have funding, we don't do it. So obtaining funding in a novel way like this is, is it makes it possible. Um, so for me, it was essentially whether or not I did this project. And I think that's true for a lot of other people too, but they haven't had this sort of group of passionate people to raise funding for them. But there are other diseases for which I think there are people with a great deal of passion and a great deal, a lot of skills in fundraising um, that this could be modeled in, in other cases as well. And I think it should be. I mean, I, I think in this difficult funding climate, the options are very few, and this gives us another one. Does it perhaps give the patients and patient advocates too much control over the research? Again, in the standard way, you would be submitting grant proposals, which, as we heard, are very difficult to get funded these days, increasingly so. So when you hear people in the public saying we should shrink the government and we should shrink our budget for science, these are a lot of the things that they wish that we would shrink, which means they will go away. One of the questions, though, is does this give non-scientists a role, perhaps too much of a role, in determining where the science goes? In this particular case, it sounds like you have a highly educated patient group, you have a foundation, and you have an individual lab working together very effectively. But if we were to adopt this model more generally, there might be various kinds of difficulties. If somebody comes in and, and says, I want you to try this particular strategy, and you say, no, no, there's no evidence for that. We've tried it, or other groups have tried it. We're not going down that route. And people could perhaps 
pull funding and so on. So one question is, does it interfere with the autonomy of the scientific researcher to have this kind of funding? Um, it certainly doesn't interfere with us, although the, the, the patients and the patient advocates ask us questions all the time. And I think in a lot of ways they're more rigorous than the scientific review committees that review my grants. Um, and it's, and it, it sharpens us. Uh, it makes us uh, say why we're doing something in a particular way or explain why we think this is a good result. So in this particular case, because of these... I mean, a lot of this stems from the fact that we had to identify the patients up front. And so their friends, their, their families, their friends of friends, etc., are all involved in the fundraising. And... Um, we we love having them. They're, we have a lab tour every month. If any, I mean, I'm not going to advertise it, but <laughs> you can find out about how to come and tour my lab. And um, and the patients are very much involved in in the lab work too. They know what's going on on a daily basis, and it's good for the people in my lab too. I have a number. There are a number of interns here tonight from my lab sitting in that corner. They always sit in the back because they're interns. <laughs> you raise your hands. There are four of them, I think. Um, and they get to interact with the patients, and it is a remarkable experience for them because they're, coming, they're doing research for the first time, and here they discover that what they're working on is, is relevant, medically relevant. And that's really inspiring, at least I think it is. Yeah, thank you. So what I'm hearing is that there's really a distinction between what we sometimes say is, you know, there are experts on things, and then there's, quote, the lay public or the public, as if somehow the public is one thing. Um, but I hear you making a distinction between sort of a general public who may be interested in medical research, but from a kind of abstract sort of way, and people who, because of their own uh, diagnosis or because of family, friends, other uh, people that they care about, have not only decided to raise money, but have really decided to educate themselves in this way so that maybe what we're talking about is another group of experts, another way of bringing the science along by having questions asked that perhaps wouldn't otherwise get asked. There is a kind of, if I may say so, a kind of acculturation that happens when you get a PhD in science and a postdoc and so on, and perhaps having people who are not trained in that way, not trained to look at something that isn't working and saying it isn't working, but maybe to ask what we might think of as naive questions or questions out of the box, or who have time, as a colleague of mine uh, once pointed out that the, um, this was in a pediatric setting, but that the parents and family of this sick child basically spent most of their time on the internet researching this in a way that a general pediatrician simply couldn't. And this was a, a physician saying, I actually learned of particular uh, strands of research and developments because the parents told me. Mm -hmm. So what you're describing is really not having uninformed lay people participate in the research, but having a specialized group who have an interest not only in the outcome of the research, but also an interest in learning as, as we go, sort of what is, what is happening and how they can participate. Yeah, that, um, I, all I can do is agree with you. Uh, but, <laughs> but, you know, it, it, one thing troubles me is when the, um, when 
Congress, congressmen, for example, say, I can't comment on global warming because I'm not a scientist. And I don't think that's a good excuse. Um, I think all these people who are working with us are citizen scientists. They can learn enough to understand what we're doing. And this is pretty complex stuff. They have no problem with it. It's really our fault because we don't explain it to them, but it then it's their fault. I mean, it's the fault of the of people in Congress. They could learn. They could learn this themselves. They don't have to just you know say I don't know, and so because I'm not a scientist. I think we're all scientists. Well, and I think the internet Including has changed Mary. that. Yeah. Well, I was going to say I'm a philosopher by training, and uh, I actually do know a fair amount about stem cells and stem cell research and the clinical applications of this. But again, it takes you know, years of, of searching the internet and talking to one's colleagues. So maybe we're talking about opening this up in ways that are productive. So let me, before I turn to the audience questions, which I'll do in just a minute, let me just ask one other sort of line of questioning, and that is, what are the ethical downsides to proceeding in this way? And again, I'm fo- focusing here on the particular funding stream. Well, I think I think depending on the project, there could be problems. Um, we've I think we've avoided those problems in our project, but um, the the closeness with the patients can, in fact, influence people in some cases. Um, I can't imagine that this. It takes a particular type of person, a particular type of scientist, a particular type of patient to form this kind of relationship, this partnership. And I'm not sure how, frequent, how often that can happen. Um, a lot of scientists are aloof. Have you, I mean, I don't even like talking to them. <laughs> you know, I mean, why use big words and use small words? <laughs> you can use small words. And why don't you explain things? I mean, you have some picture in your mind of how this works, and so why don't you just tell me? Um, so I think that it's going to be difficult to do this sort of generally because people are used to being held at a distance from um, lay people. Okay, yes, and so it does make it difficult if picking up on something that you said earlier in your presentation that the 10 people that were chosen to actually have a skin biopsy and have their skin cells uh, passaged and differentiated into these neurons, who would be then the 10 first people to enroll in the clinical trial once it gets to that stage and is approved, those 10 people have to meet certain criteria, what technically we call inclusion and exclusion criteria. You can't be, say, six years old. That would be too young, and we would think that such people were too risky. We probably wouldn't want to enroll somebody who was 97 years old and had various uh, other diseases that might make it very unlikely that this would help them. But if I know my patient group and their families, and I can only enroll 10 at this particular stage, what I need to do as a scientist and as a medical researcher is choose for the research study, choose those 10 people who will most likely um, give us what we need in terms of the study population. And that's a very different role than I might have as a friend or even as somebody's physician, because if I am your physician, I have an obligation to you and to make sure that you get what you need. In research, it's different because the researcher really has a primary ethical commitment 
to the research. And that's not for some selfish reason. That is because if the research doesn't succeed, we don't then end up with something that stands up to rigorous testing. We can't bring it to the market and we can't help the 11th to the 10,000th patient that we might want to help. So I could imagine that there might be some conflict of interest or some discomfort on the part of the researcher and maybe some difficulty with, uh, say, uh, patients or advocates who have been raising money but but don't qualify to be in the the study. Um, Let me just ask one other quick thing, and it actually comes from uh, one of the questions, and that is why are we even worrying about the ethics of this? Why shouldn't people be able to get together and raise money? And we've started to touch on some of those issues. One that I would like to ask uh, Dr. Loring to comment on is what about issues of sort of justice? As we know, there are what we often call, you know, rare diseases or, quote, orphan diseases where the number of people in a country who have that disease are 10 or maybe 100 people, um, as opposed to something like breast cancer, which has a very large patient population. So you have a lot of people who can articulate the need and go out and fundraise. With an orphan disease, you wouldn't. The other place where you might want to wonder about the impact of this would be on diseases that only appear in very poor communities or even in in parts of the world that um, are very distant from us. And here I'm thinking of things like malaria. So, you know, we would want to be careful that the research dollars aren't going just to people who are the most organized with the loudest voices um, or who have diseases that have caught attention in a way that perhaps other diseases hadn't. Yeah, so this is a gap that um, I think the NIH is certainly trying to fill by targeting orphan diseases specifically. But the group that's really targeting this is the in the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They only fund things that are uh, that that are prevalent in the third world or prevalent among people who don't have a great deal of education and resources. So. I sort of, I think over the years, because I, I was a, bioethic, a bioethics advisor for them, I got the feeling that um, they were going to make up for the parts that, things that, things that I really couldn't do. Um, they actually did fund a project of mine early on, but then they decided that investing in stem cells was not what they wanted to do, unfortunately for me. But, um, but you know, I can see that they, they, it, it evolves, and I think they, have, um, they certainly have great resources, and I think they're generally using them wisely. This is experimental work, and it has, uh, we hope, benefit, um, but we tend to think the worst outcome is it won't work. But as uh, Dr. Loring pointed out earlier, looking at fetal research and some of the other studies, that is not the worst outcome. The worst outcome is it's going to make you worse. And I think people tend to forget that. So part of enrolling people, too, is making sure that they're fully informed about what the sort of risks and benefits are, not just from the point of view of the study that we don't want people to Uh, sort of give up or decide not to continue in the study. On the other hand, we also have a responsibility in the research community to make sure that people understand that this is a risk. One of the things that came out earlier in the early days of stem cell, quote, research was we kept calling it stem cell therapy. And some of the educators and ethicists 
came back and said, we should not be calling this stem cell therapy. Therapy suggests that it works. We haven't determined that this works. We're not even putting it in people yet. Works well in rats. And if you're a rat and you get Parkinson's, good for you. But for the rest of us, right, it's, it's kind, of a, kind of a problem. Um, okay, let's see if we can. Uh, oh, I, another question, another line of questioning. Uh, which I think is a very important question, which is why has the funding been cut and what can we do to help? Thank you very much for that question. Yeah, that's I, a very good sort of part of the discussion. I, I'm going to tell you just my opinion because there are lots of opinions about this. But um, the NIH has been suffering uh, from the sort of um, clogged state of the Congress for quite a long time now. And it's never been a very high priority because people don't really know what the NIH does. Um, so they're trying, the NIH is trying to sort of re-change their image so that they are more accessible, so that people can understand what their role is. In fact, you guys are the ones who are paying the NIH to do this. You're taxpayers. That's where the money comes from. So they're, they're becoming uh, less aloof, I think, because of this. I mean, it's actually a good thing, I think, that they've had pressure put on them. Um, but... I, you know, the, the economy drives it. I wish I knew why, all the whys. I don't, I don't. I just know that it's, uh, that my colleagues and I are not getting grants like we used to get. Um, let me ask then uh, something perhaps a bit more pragmatic, uh, and that is a line of questions about sort of treatment. Uh, someone would like to know when, if, things go well, the general public might either be able, I take it, to enroll in a sort of second phase or later phase of the trial. Mm -hmm. And then I would like to add sort of when, again, assuming that things go well, not unreasonably well, just, you know, sort of a reasonable expectation of how long things take, when might we actually see something in the clinic? Yeah, so um, we have a timeline, which, of course, depends on us having funding going forward. Um, we could do the first, start the first clinical trials in as little as two and a half years. We'll have to watch the patients for a while because the FDA's major issue is safety. Um, and also, this is going to be dependent how fast we can do this. is going to be dependent on whether the FDA changes its regulations, which they're currently considering. In fact, the stem cell, the fact that there are stem cells and there are therapies is actually motivating the FDA to take another, another look at this. They're actually going to have a meeting. They, they let us come and talk to them. Um, there are two meetings in September that I'll be going to in D.C., um, that one of which is going to be focused on the regulations for stem cell therapies, or whatever they are. Um, so I think that, I, I mean, I think things are changing. And so my prediction is as soon as the first group of people are okay, we don't know how, it may take a year before we really see any recovery based on the fetal cell trials, um, then um, we'll bring in another cohort. But it's, you know, it can't be, it can't proceed really fast because uh, we have, we still have those quality control issues. We're still making, we're going to be making the cells for the trials. Um, and they have to be of, of very good quality. And as you know, when, um, when a drug goes generic, sometimes it's not exactly the same drug. And we don't want that to happen with us. A connected question is about 
when people actually have these uh, cells implanted and they sort of regenerate the um, dopamine, is this something that you expect then to continue? I mean, that's what we saw at least in some of the fetal cell transplants. Or is it possible that these cells will sort of die off and people will see symptoms emerging yeah, so again? This is one of the really interesting issues and one of the motivations for doing autologous or patient-specific therapy. Um, so it took a very long time for people to lose 80% of their dopamine neurons. And we suspect the same mechanisms, the same things are going on. And that some of those are genetic. Then it'll take a really long time for, them, for those neurons to die. However, if they, we do experience some um, lack of, of um, the therapy taking hold over time, because these, these cells come from the patient, we can give them more cells. And I don't know, that's a little subtle, I think. But if we were to give them cells from another person, they would develop antibodies against them. And so you couldn't put those cells in the person again because they'd be rejected immediately. And all the immunosuppression in the world would not help. So we have this reservoir of cells that we can use to treat people over time if they don't respond in the initial study time frame. So this is an instance of what we've been calling precision or individualized sort of medicine, that people are actually using their own, uh, their own cells. Uh, this is a, um, maybe I wouldn't say an unfriendly question, but a more critical sort of question. And it takes us back to the, the ethics of this particular rather unique way of funding research, and that is whether there's a sense in which um, what is happening in this model, not perhaps in this particular trial, but in this model, what it opens up is the possibility of rich people buying their way into a clinical trial. And I do know that there are some instances where there are trials going on, and of course we've heard about the funding issues. I think everyone here can imagine the costs involved in running clinical trials. So um, there have been a couple of instances where there have been trials and you can basically pay for your own costs and then enroll. That's not what we're doing here, but the question is if this is the kind of model, uh, how, do we, how do we prohibit sort of just the idea that um, the, uh, the rich people who have this disease buy their way into or occupy all of the slots in the clinical trials early yeah. on. I can see why that would be a problem. I can see that happening. Um, I, I, I know of instances in which, um, even if it's approved by the FDA, that does not preclude charging patients for the therapy. It's just the, the way the system works is that I, we're not going to do that. <laughs> And we're not going to do it because we find it ethically unsavory. Um, but people do do it. And some of my colleagues are willing to do that. So I think that is going to be a problem. And I don't know how to keep people from um, setting up a model like that because it's perfectly legal. Um, I think we just, uh, I mean, I don't, I, I don't have an answer to that. I really don't. It's not going to happen with this one, but if somebody else tries, you know, decides to follow our lead and, um, and then continue with the clinical trials in which they charge people, 
there's nothing we can do about that under the current regulations. It's perfectly legal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that uh, often is a rejoinder to questions about fairness is that, you know, um, some people drive better cars than others. Some people have better medical care because they have better medical insurance. How is this uh, different? But somehow the idea that this is research that people buy their way into. Uh, there's, a, there's a lovely book that I recommend called, you know, Not Everything is for Sale. And so one question is, how do we you know, make sure that, in fact, we have a sort of just system for people participating in medical research. Um, another question is, uh, I like this one as we're getting later into the program. Uh, it's not an ethics one, but it's uh, something I think a lot of us might be interested in, in connection with this particularly unique way of fundraising. And that is, could you tell us more about the mountain climbing part <laughs> of this foundation and this fundraising? It was an inspiration. I think Sherry wanted to, to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. And so she led these people on a rigorous training program. And they did it. There were people from who had Parkinson's disease who made it not only up there, but also, um, also um, got to the base camp of Mount Everest. And a lot of these people have taken up bicycling. I mean, it's really quite remarkable. And I think Sherry is really the inspiration behind all of that. Well, I mean, that certainly um, stems from my, my position as a nurse practitioner at Scripps Clinic. And I see almost, I see many of my patients here, actually. I see 100%, maybe 99% Parkinson's and a smattering of essential tremor and things like that. And in that, what we have learned over the years is, as everyone who knows me knows, there's probably nothing, nothing more important for people with Parkinson's than exercise. And it is as important as medicine that people are taking, and it completely goes with the whole, the whole picture. So in forming Summit for Stem Cell, it just made sense. Like, what can we do to push not just people without Parkinson's, but people with Parkinson's beyond their normal thing of what they think they can do? I mean, I really am a believer in that we all set our expectations way too low. And when we do these mountain climbs, we get people, we're doing Machu Picchu now in October. We've got 28 people signed up, and about eight of those people have Parkinson's. And a lot of them right now probably can't climb much more than an hour. But I guarantee you, we'll train with them, we'll have people supporting them without Parkinson's and people with Parkinson's, and we're going to climb Machu Picchu, and we're going to rage... 15,000 feet up into the air, which is, which is low compared to Kilimanjaro and Everest. And at the end of that, we're going to raise lots of money for this project. And people will be participating in their own therapy. And that's what's exciting. It's like people, even if they're not going to climb Machu Picchu, we can get our practice to say, join us for a training hike. Be there. Support us. Be part of it. And there's an energy that flows from it. So that's, that's how the mountain climb started. And as long as Summit exists, we will continue to climb mountains. That I promise you. So you can always check in with us, Jennifer, myself, at uh, Summit for Stem Cell, and we'll let you know what the upcoming climb is going to be. Yeah, so you see what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> so it started as therapy, not as research. <laughs> so... Um, Another question, uh, again, about this kind of approach. It is very uh, inspiring, and it seems to be working really well. 
Um, but a more skeptical question from the audience is, um, if the patients fund the research or fund the, the research for their own disease, what incentive will the government have to fund research in the future? In other words, we've already heard that there's a drop in the percentage of uh, funding. Uh, we have a kind of, if I dare say it, anti-scientific ethos in, in some sectors of the population right now. And uh, so, so there is this question about, you know, the sort of downside of this. Again, maybe not in a particular case, but if this were to take off, I could imagine somebody, say, somebody in Congress saying, why should we pay for this research? I don't have Parkinson's. I don't have breast cancer. So if you do, organize yourselves and raise money for what you care about. Yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm willing to comment about that. Um, back in the 80s when biotechnology started, we had the same argument. Um, if you can get people to invest in a company to develop a therapy, then why would the NIH want to fund it? It turned out what the NIH did in response to that was create a program to fund projects in biotechnology, to fund projects in for profits, and that program still exists. So I don't see that as being um, the, a downside of this current kind of thing. And we're also, we have to realize that we're a drop on the bucket compared to the NIH budget. We're not going to have a lot of impact on their, their funding. And people, of course, us included, will be asking for more funding from the NIH to carry out studies like this. So I think the impact will be minimal. I think we have very little to do with uh, the way that NIH um, funds research. Unfortunately. Okay, well, I think we, we will conclude there. I want to thank um, not only Mary and Jean for their excellent conversation and, and helping us to forward this discussion, but also the audience for your participation by your questions. And um, one of the things we hope is that this will not stop here and not just stop after a conversation immediately afterwards in this room tonight, but that you'll take this kind of conversation and question to your friends and colleagues in the community. Um, this is a different model for science, and it may be one that is useful, and maybe it won't be. I think that's a question that, that's still um, out there for us to, to address. And thank you again for joining us this evening. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.